Good morning. My name is Kathy, as I can see. Today's reading is from the Paul's first study of the church in Corinth, chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved. If you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I hand it on, on to you as if as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. God of resurrection, you have rolled the stone away and the tomb of our world has been opened wide. With the dawn has come a new creation. Through these human words and by the power of your Holy Spirit today, we pray that you would empty our tombs renew our lives, and release your power. Through the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're back in 1 Corinthians this week. And you'll remember from the past few weeks that this comes from a letter from the Apostle Paul to one of the churches he helped found in the city of Corinth. What we know about this letter is that things aren't going well there at all. There's a lot of conflict. There's multiple sources of controversy and contention. For the last three weeks or so, we've talked about the uh, conflict over spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of speaking in tongues. And if you want to know more about that, go back. Go on the church website and go back. This week, though, Paul pivots to a completely different controversy. This controversy has to do with the resurrection of Jesus. We're not exactly sure as to what they're saying, but apparently some of the Corinthians have taken to denying Jesus' resurrection altogether. 
Now, this doesn't seem strange to us at all in our post-Christian North American culture. People are denying it all the time. I mean, it's something a yearly ritual for, say, Time magazine to come out with the question, did Jesus really exist, let alone did the resurrection happen? But it wasn't crazy to deny it in the ancient Greek and Roman world either. Some might believe in the possibility of someone coming back to life as kind of a freakish miracle, but many, if not most others, didn't or don't. The church, though, is a different matter for Paul because resurrection is what Paul's come preaching in the first place. This is the message that I proclaimed to you that you made your own, he says. This message on which you took your stand and by which your life has been saved. Resurrection is what drew them together as a community on day one, and resurrection is their reason for being their raison d'etre. That's about all the French I know. (laughs) No resurrection, no salvation, no point to the faith, and no point to the church either, Paul says. Without resurrection, it's all in vain. It's all vanity, he says. The Corinthians seem to have forgotten just how crucial crucial resurrection is, so Paul kind of jogs their memory by rehearsing the basics again. He's like, okay, let's take it at the top. Over again, repeat after me. Christ died for our sins, he says. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is kind of like Paul's elevator speech. He's stuck in an elevator. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Christ died for our sins. The resurrection is true, he says, because it follows the pattern set by the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, it says. Not in the New Testament, which hasn't been written yet. Believe it or not, Paul's letters are even older, earlier than the Gospels. But the Scriptures he's referring to are the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. So when Paul says Christ died for our sins, he's pointing to a text like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which foretells of a figure who is wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. That Christ is the one who would break the power of sin and death by taking their full force into himself. We're not sure which text he's referring to in terms of the resurrection. He doesn't get that specific, but it's likely the victory of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Regardless of which passages he's talking about, though, Paul tells them the resurrection has biblical precedence. It's true because it fulfills ancient promises. It fulfills ancient promises. He doesn't just leave it at the Bible, though. Don't just take the Bible's word for it. I know it's very dependable, he says, But remember that the resurrection is true because there were countless witnesses to it. Remember how when Jesus was raised, he appeared to his friends. First it was Peter, then the rest of the disciples. Events that would eventually be recorded in the New Testament. Then remember how the risen Jesus appeared to that crowd of more than 500 brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive and kicking. You don't believe me? Ask them. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, and all the apostles. The resurrection is true, Paul says, because there were witnesses, not just any witnesses, but reliable ones. Jesus' inner circle. Ones who knew Jesus 
pre-crucifixion. Some of you can still ask if you want to. So how can you deny the resurrection when so many people saw the risen Jesus with their own two eyes? This is the argument that Paul is making. Now, at this point, you might be wondering something. Paul's making the case for resurrection in the face of Corinthian doubts. He hasn't really said why it matters. Sure, it's true, but what difference does it make? Why should we care, Paul? Why is their faith in vain? Why is church useless without it? And it's here where Paul calls another witness to the stand. And that witness is Paul. You got it. Paul himself. Here things get autobiographical with Paul. Last of all, he says, last of all, as to someone untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. Paul recount, then Paul goes on to recount what might be one of the most famous conversion stories in history, which you can find in chapter 9 of the Acts of the Apostles. If you've ever heard the phrase, a road of Damascus experience, or have ever heard Hank Williams, uh, I saw the light, you know something about this story. Paul used to be known as Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. I am the least of the apostles, Paul recounts. I'm the least on the list of witnesses because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a Pharisee. He was once a righteous religious hardliner. He zealously persecuted some of the earliest Christians, and was implicated in several executions, including the apostle Stephen's gruesome death by stoning. This guy was a bad dude. Paul was not a good guy. Paul wasn't a good guy, that is, until something changed him. Until Paul met the risen Jesus. He'd set off on a trip to Damascus to drag some heretics back to Jerusalem for trial. On the way, though, he was struck down by a flash of light and an unknown voice that soon revealed itself as Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Long story short, after some momentary blindness and some ministrations from a kind Christian named Ananias, Saul, renamed Paul, took a complete one, no wait, you, yeah, you take a 180, right? I was going to say 360. No, 180. <laughs> he ended up in the other direction, not in the same. He became an apostle of the Lord, preaching, teaching, and planting churches until his own execution under Roman persecutors. Some called Paul the first Christian or the founder of Christianity. All on account of a run-in with the risen Lord. Jesus' resurrection fundamentally changed Paul. Through this encounter, Paul was born again. Saul became Paul. I know the resurrection is true, Paul says, because I was a hater. I was a murderer 
a persecutor of the innocent and the oppressed, an enemy of the Lord God himself. I was a dealer of death, captive to sin, until Jesus came along and struck me down and saved me. That is Paul's story. And Paul says that kind of change ain't possible under normal circumstances. I am who I am now, not who I was on account of Jesus. By the grace of God, he says, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. I know Christ is risen, Paul says. I know that Christ is risen because I was dead. And he raised me. I know that Christ is risen because I was dead and he raised me. The church must hold fast to the resurrection. Paul tells us not just because it's true, though it is, which he goes through painstaking lengths to show us, not just because miracles happen, though, I mean, keep an open mind, undoubtedly, they can and they do. No. For Paul, it's because resurrection is God's power to bring into existence those things that do not exist. It's God's power to unlove or to love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable, and to change the unchangeable. The capacity to save those who are thought to be beyond saving, even no good, dirty, rotten Pharisees like Paul. I mean, if you want to take it all the way, this is one of the most radical teachings at the heart of Christianity, that on account of the resurrection, there's hope for even the worst of us. Christ died for the ungodly, Paul proclaims in another book, the book of Romans. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth, another shout out to Karl Barth two weeks in a row. If you got your bingo card, Ryan Bingo, Karl Barth. Karl Barth calls this the impossible possibility, a God who is able to do what we in our own striving and effort cannot do for ourselves. It's the sweet sound of what John Newton called amazing grace when he was saved from his own wretchedness as a slave trader. That's the story of that song. It's not just a past event. The resurrection means that even the worst of us can and even will be changed by grace. Jesus' resurrection is 100% essential because Jesus' resurrection means our own new life, true change here and now, beginning here and now. Jesus' resurrection means our own here and now. And this past week, I was reminded of one of the first Easter services I ever attended. It was in this cathedral-style United Church, and it was packed to the gills, obviously pre-COVID, by a couple decades, actually. 
I'm getting old. Uh, I don't remember much about the service itself, but I remember the preacher, who was a rather likable, affable fellow. He was very smart. I liked him very much. And he was talking about the resurrection. And at one point he said something like, look, I know it's hard to believe in the resurrection. I know it's hard to believe in that. But you don't have to believe that the resurrection happened to be open to the possibility of new life. He said, you don't have to believe that the resurrection happened to be open to the possibility of new life. Well, down in the front row, this well-kept, gray-haired, bearded guy, maybe 55 or so, in a nice gray Easter suit, you could tell it was his Easter suit, he just stood right up. He just stood right up. And it was clear by this guy's accent that he was very Scottish. Okay? And my guess is that this guy was visiting with family because he did not like what he was hearing. <laughs> now, no offense, I'm going to do a Scottish accent here. So, is Trudy here? Trudy's not here. His Trudy, Trudy and Carol aren't here. So, hopefully they aren't tuning in online. So... My apologies to them if they see this, but I feel like it's necessary. He didn't like what he heard. He stood up, and interrupting the preacher mid-sentence, he replied with a resounding, No! That echoed through the rafters. No! He shouted again. These people, he said, these people need to be reborn. These people need to be reborn. The preacher was taken a little off guard. <laughs> you know, he just sort of stumbled through his words and he sort of laughed it off and eventually continued. And the old Scott, he sat down and everything returned to normal. At that point, I must admit, I was on the preacher's side. I didn't get the big deal whether it happened or didn't happen. What mattered was the meaning, only the meaning, I thought. Over time, though, I've come to think that, well, maybe that old Scott was right. That its meaning is yoked to its reality. To be clear, I'm not saying that doubts aren't natural or that it's an airtight scientific fact or that it has to be thought of only in one way. I'm not. It's still a deep, deep, deep mystery. But I think he was right because he was making Paul's point that the resurrection is real not just as something that happened long, long ago, but that if it's true, then human beings can be changed. We can be reborn and made new here and now. And that without this promise, as Paul says, all the church has is good music, coffee, and another long list of do's 
and don'ts. Without it, Paul says, without it, I'm nothing. The church is nothing. And without it, he says, all is vanity. But if it's true, there is a power in this world outside the old settled boundaries and rules of existence. We truly can be reborn because Jesus' resurrection means our own. Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus fundamentally transformed him into a new person. That's the moral of the story and why the resurrection is so crucial. Because if God can raise someone like Paul from the dead, imagine who else he can raise. Not even the worst offender or screw-up. Nobody is a write-off. And if God can raise someone so skeptical, so dead-set against him from a life of emptiness and fear, who else can God save? Who else is God saving? Why not me? Why not you? Why not the one we love that we've given up on? Heck, why not the ones we hate? We're the ones hate us. Jesus' resurrection means our own, your own, here and now, because if God raised Jesus, then God can raise anyone. You could say it's the church's not-so-secret sauce. Without it, we're just another struggling institution. With it, though, with it, we might be cooking with gas. Because in Christ, there is a new creation. So hold on to this news firmly, brothers and sisters. I hand this on to you as of first importance, which I received. Christ died and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and appeared to a host of witnesses including Paul, including that cranky old Scott on Easter, even including me. Hold fast because it's the grace in which we stand. And through it, we're being saved. Amen. stand for our hymn of the day, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound.
This word.